Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we talk about backdoor Roth conversions, I-bonds, and dogs for some reason. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed. And please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another episode of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Good to see you, bud. Good to see you. Today, I'm not in Crooked Crab gear. I've got my good old Craftwork Capital shirt on, so I'm trying to switch it up for the viewers out there. That's funny. We were. I was actually just going to comment on that. We hadn't talked about it before the show, but I was proud to see you actually rocking our swag instead of uh, just the brewery today. Yeah, I've got some Craftwork Capital and Check Your Balance swag. I've got my mug sitting right here. Someone did claim one of my extra mugs. I need to ship it out. Now I'm pulling a Ross and sitting on that mug because I don't have a good box to send it in. The wine keys, very prompt. But now I've been thrown for a loop with uh, with the mug request. Yeah, you've really improved the wine key shipping operation. I still have the boxes. So if I see you physically in person, I can get you what you need to ship a mug. But we didn't transfer all of that inventory over to you when you started shipping the wine keys. So now we're in a delay situation again with the final remaining mug that we need to ship out. Yeah, you're not that far from me in all likelihood, but you may as well be on the other coast. We see each other so infrequently in real life. I mean, yeah, we talk every single day almost, but it's basically an hour in between us and much worse if there's traffic. So yeah, it's it's not that necessary for us to get together in person, even though we do this show every week. Yeah. I do like seeing you in person. It's a step up from the virtual get-togethers. I appreciate that. I like seeing you as well. Yeah, I wish we did that more. But that being said, this is a mailbag episode. We haven't done one in a little while. I am excited. We get to dig into what our listeners have been asking of us. Perhaps you out there that have not been the asker of this question have similar thoughts in your head. So I think this is a good time to kind of unpack some of that stuff. We're going to start with two very quick ones. First of all, just a shout out to Allison, who listened to our year in review episode. She talked about her budget for her pet and sent a photo of the cutest dog. And I just want to say, regardless of what your question is about, if you send us a question, you can always include a photo of your pet. That made my day much happier. And uh, I appreciate Allison sending her, her dog along. If you don't have a question, feel welcome to send a picture of your pet anyway. We could even, I'm not going to repost this one at the moment, but we can repost these on our Instagram feed. We can send the Check Your Balances pets out there for folks that are prudently budgeting for their pets. Ooh, next swag idea. Check Your Balances bandanas for dogs. Ooh, I like that. I we, do we, show dog favoritism. I'm, I'm just going to put that out there. So if anyone's I, upset about like no cat swag, I, I'm a dog guy. I'll look uh, at your cats too. I'm happy to see them. I love. We're, we're going to hear cats. about that. I'm certain of it. That's okay. Fine. Next one, really quick. Our friend Ed, who's a longtime listener, mentioned that we talked about a five-year strategy on how to produce income and couldn't find that in our episode list. And I think it's because it's got a unique name. But Dan, can you talk about where to find our five-year income-producing strategy? 
Yeah, so we posted that on September 20th of 2023. It's called Carve Out versus Dividends Portfolio Income Showdown. And that's where we address the five-year carve-out that we're talking about. Yeah, so that that is a kind of a core thing that we talk about uh, is, is that carve-out strategy and how to use it. Um, that is a big part of our practice. It's kind of a complicated topic, but we did our best to cover it as part of the show. Okay, let's get into a question that we're going to have to take a deeper dive into. This comes to us from Greg, who, by the way, Greg, he uses one butter knife for peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Spread the peanut butter first, clean the peanut butter off the knife, and then, and that's with the other slice of bread. So another vote in Dan's direction for how he makes a PB&J. I don't know how this has become such a big thing. This has gotten bigger than the rice cakes. <laughs> I forgot about the rice cakes, in all fairness. <laughs> yeah. At least I have one I have one winning argument. Yeah, when moment. you tried to kill me on air with a rice cake. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I wish we had video of that. I wish that were <laughs> yeah, in that, the YouTube that was days. before we started doing video. Yeah. Okay, so Greg writes in, says uh, he's 52 years old, planning to retire at 59 and a half, and was late to the game and contributing to his Roth IRAs. They've got a nest egg that is fairly sizable, lots of residual income, wants to minimize taxes. And his plan for 2024 is to make the maximum contribution, including the plus 50 catch up into the pre-tax 401k. The question is, I'm wondering if I should start putting some of the money into the Roth 401k since I can't contribute to Roth IRAs outside of the company due to IRS income limits. What say you to Greg, Dan? So from Greg's question, it sounds like there is income coming in. He's in the fat part of his earning years, and tax deferral is a priority for him. If you think your tax rate is higher than it's going to be in the future today, the value of those pre-tax contributions might be great. So while I don't know exactly what's going on, you know those things all indicate that pre-tax is valuable. And if if you're going to do this in a 401k, every Roth dollar you contribute to that 401k is at the expense of a pre-tax dollar you can be contributing. One interesting thing that I that I would mention is he's looking at a retirement, you know, 59 and a half, which is great because your pre-tax money is accessible at that point. If you're not going to have other income, your pulling money out of pre-tax accounts post-retirement at low tax rates might be as good as making Roth contributions earlier in retirement because you can pull it out at controlled and low tax rates. So it doesn't necessarily need to be a thing where you're looking at this year and thinking, what should I do? But rather looking a little bit longer term and thinking, where do I get the most value from these dollars? And while we don't know what tax rates will be in the future, you know, if you're shutting off your employment income, that might be an opportunity to use those pre-tax dollars and pay, you know, perhaps as low as humanly possible on them. Yeah. So in many cases, when people have a, what I'll call early-ish retirement, and by early-ish, I mean before social security has kicked in, you've got some choice in the matter, right? Because you can file social security as early as 62. You can wait up to age 70 and maximize it. So there's a big window there and it's a big decision point on when you're going to choose to do that. And there's a bunch of things at play there. But before Social Security's on, after working income has stopped, you may have just a massive gap of low tax years. Could be a couple years, could be 10, based on the situation that you're illustrating, 10 or even 11, really, because 59 and a half all the way up to age 70, depending on where your birthday falls. So that's what I would be looking at is, do I have that opportunity? Now, as a general rule of thumb, 
I think people that are in the 22% or below tax bracket, Roth often makes some sense for them, at least as a part of their saving strategy. I think 24% federal is kind of the true bubble bracket. I think that's almost a split it bracket where you do 50-50. I could make a case either way. If you're north of 24% federal right now, I would say pre-tax in most cases is going to make more sense. But again, as Dan said, we're kind of also looking at where you are in your earnings trajectory because kind of later in your career, you tend to be in that fattest band of earnings where you're making the most that you're going to make and you probably are going to see a drop off once you get to full retirement. So I agree. I think pre-tax here probably makes the most sense unless we're missing some, some big piece that we don't understand. And then just to double down on that period between when you retire and when really social security and RMDs kick on, you know, the opportunities there are either to start withdrawing from your pre-tax IRAs at low tax rates, or if you don't need the money, some people just don't need it. There's an opportunity to do Roth conversions at that point and say, I'm willing to pay taxes today up to this dollar amount. That would mean converting X dollars to Roth. Let me just do that. And you start filling your Roth bucket post-retirement. The last thing I'll point out, and we're spending a lot of time on the on the question, but I just want to make sure that we address it. So he says that he's got an income limit, which is is great. So he's making too much to contribute to a Roth IRA. That doesn't necessarily mean that he's making too much to contribute to a backdoor. And we're going to talk about the backdoor a little bit more in an upcoming question because we've got a few things about this. But a backdoor... Roth IRA is still a possibility, even if you are over the income limit. It depends on what your other IRA structure is and where you've got other stuff, but we are going to spend some more time on that later. Look at that beautiful segue, Ross. It's like, right? you, it's like we planned that out. Yeah, it's, it's like we lined these questions up and did the minimum amount of prep for our show today to make sure that this was very, very slick. Which, right. which we didn't even do, for the record. <laughs> this was just very convenient for us. Correct. This comes to us from Tim, who also believes only one utensil is required for a PB&J. This is in all of our emails now. I love it. I love um, it. Too. All right. So, so Tim writes in, longtime listener, second time emailer. 2023, he did a backdoor Roth IRA for himself and for his wife. He's got a 457. She's a sole proprietor, LLC, and contributes to her Roth 401k. Tim forgot that his wife's got an old SEP. SEP. Self-employment pension. That's a basically a small business IRA plan. Hadn't contributed to it for years. Has significant money in it. He did a backdoor Roth IRA in 2023 and says, now I'm pretty sure it was a mistake and I'll be subject to the pro rata rule. Bad news, Tim. I believe that you're correct. Okay, so here are the questions. Number one, we'll, we'll take these in order. Number one, is there any way to undo this? The backdoor Roth funds are still sitting in cash and have only made pennies in interest. She has not fully funded her 2023 individual 401k yet, if that makes any difference. Dan, can you undo a backdoor Roth conversion at this point? No, I, I believe you can no longer undo Roth conversions, period. So, so we're there stuck used to be There used to be a rule where you could back it out. People were using that pretty liberally. I believe right. that door has been shut. I believe so too. So this is this is what we have now. We have a Roth conversion that was completed. The next question is, if you can't undo this, is there anything to do besides telling your CPA? I think that's a great start. The, the good news is 
there's no problems. It's just we had an unintended consequence of making this transaction in which the pro rata rule would apply. We're going to have to pay some taxes on the pre-tax portion that was deemed to have been converted along with the after-tax contribution that you made to the IRA. Okay. If anybody's lost, let's just zoom out one more time and talk about the pro rata rule. I think we talk about this a Good lot. Idea. And, and if people are tired of hearing us talk about this, I apologize, but I think this is a major point of confusion. So I'm, I'm just going to slam into it. Okay. I, I've also come across this like 10 times with clients this week. It is always something that people talk about because backdoor Roths are such a common strategy to pitch people. Correct. Yeah, it's it's a common thing. We just did it, by the way. A question right. ago, we pitched it as a, hey, maybe you should think about this. But here's the consideration. If you have any other IRA dollars for the individual that you're trying to do a backdoor Roth for, any other IRA dollars that are pre-tax, then what you have to do is a proportion of after-tax versus pre-tax dollars. And so I think the easy example is if you had 95,000 pre-tax dollars and 5,000 after-tax dollars, right? So 5% of your total IRA money is after-tax. You cannot do just that $5,000 as a backdoor Roth. You cannot choose which of your IRA dollars. They are going to look at them in aggregate. So 5% of your backdoor Roth conversion or any Roth conversion for that matter is going to be considered after tax already. So if you do a Roth conversion of all of it, you can convert every dollar, by the way, you can do the whole hundred grand in this example. 5% is not going to be taxable in the year that you do it. 95% will. That's the pro rata. It doesn't matter if they're in separate accounts. It doesn't matter if one is a SEP IRA and the other is a traditional IRA and the third one is a simple IRA. We are looking at all of your IRAs in aggregate. Do you have pre-tax dollars and do you also have after-tax dollars? That's the key. Which leads us to the third question. So if this is the scenario you face, what can you do to facilitate backdoor Roth conversions in the future? So in this scenario, there's a SEP IRA out there, which is what's making this pro rata rule an issue. Is there a way to roll that into another qualified plan like a 401k, which would wipe away all the IRA balances and make it a clean backdoor? For this scenario, I believe the answer is yes. So you can roll a SEP IRA into a 401k. They cited an IRS chart that made it look like that was not possible. I have that rollover chart from the IRS. I'm constantly surprised at how many valuable tools the IRS provides people on their website. If you look at the SEP IRA line and follow it across, there's a section that explicitly states 401k, but it's only listed under the designated Roth column. So they're talking specifically about Roth 401ks, which you cannot directly roll a SEP IRA into. But the place that would cover just regular 401k plans is under a header called qualified plan. And if you find the intersection of SEP IRA and qualified plan, the answer is yes. You can move those balances into the solo K and then have a clean slate for backdoor Roths for your wife. That means the solo K has to be willing to accept it, which most of them will be. But yeah, so in the example, going back to the the example that we gave, this is the equivalent of taking the 95,000 pre-tax dollars and getting them away from this measurement. 
You're going to put those into the 401k, which the IRS is like, huh? We don't know that that's there. That's a different bucket for some reason. So you get it away from this pro rata by putting it into the 401k. And now the $5,000 left that is after-tax money in the IRA, that can be done as a clean backdoor Roth. Now, you're probably going to have a few bucks of interest or whatever, um, and you're just going to pay the taxes on that. That's not a huge deal in most cases. But So yes, there is a way around this for next year. But this year, what's likely going to happen is that you're just going to pay some income tax on the majority of that backdoor Roth conversion that you think you did, and you really did what is a regular Roth conversion, and you accelerated about $6,000 of income. Yep, there you go. All right. Now that everybody's completely lost, let's get into our next question here. Let's talk about I-bonds. All right, this comes to us from Alex. So Alex, uh, I'll, I'll shorten the question just a little bit. He's in pretty good shape. He is saving, putting together a cash carve-out bucket, using some brokered CDs through Fidelity, building some cash, building some cash, and using some I-bonds, okay? So the I-bond, you know what drives me nuts, by the way, with the I-bond? What's that? Is, is that it's both the Treasury Direct product called I-bond, but that BlackRock has also come out with the I-bond ETF, which is the target maturity ETF. That's right. It's the same name for the exact same thing in terms of like how you call it, but it, it completely different products. That's not good. So we're talking right now about the I-bonds from the Treasury, which is an inflation-linked bond from the Treasury that you only buy through Treasury Direct. And those are linked to the CPI number. We talked about them almost two years ago, a little over two years ago on our show. Yeah. In the early days, for sure. Yeah. Because inflation was ratcheting really high and you had the ability to basically make seven to 9% while inflation was ripping on a treasury bond, which was lovely. Alex is basically wondering, should that be part of his carve out and his portfolio today? So let's talk about the I bonds again. Yeah. So I, th- I think what's interesting is back when we first talked about I-bonds, the main driver of return at that period of time was the inflation component of it. I-bonds actually have two things that are contributors to their return, their fixed rate and the inflation adjusted rate. When we first talked about it, the fixed rate was zero and the inflation rate was like 9%. I forget the exact number, but it was really high and really attractive. As we sit today, we actually have a fixed rate at the bottom of the I-bond now, plus the inflation-adjusted component, which I believe come together to about a 5.27% annual return on new I-bonds purchased today. Correct. And I think this is everything purchased after 2022. So I believe this is 23 and beyond have the fixed component plus the floating component. So in order to figure out what you're getting in total on a current I-bond, you need both of those things. The old I-bonds, it's just the floating component. So if you bought them before 2023 when we told you to, which was not a bad deal at the time, you are only getting the floating part. Right, absolutely. So I think they're still an attractive tool, but the other thing to remember about I-bonds is they technically don't provide any return for the first year if you need money. If you need your money and pull it out, they're saying no interest for you. You can have your money back. Between one and five years, if you need your money, you're giving up three months of interest. 
And then after five years, you're basically fully vested in the interest that they provide you. So I think that's also important to remember. But that's still, I, I think for short term, not like emergency needs, but like that mid bucket of liquidity, I-bonds are still a fairly attractive tool to have in the toolbox. So if you've got the old set of I-bonds, if you bought them in 2022 and, and before that, like I did, I'm getting ready to get rid of mine. I literally had a conversation with Dan about this yesterday where I'm doing the math on kind of when the interest was paid, what my three month look back period is, because I'm going to give up some of that interest for a few months. And I'm getting ready to unwind those positions because the floating rate of the I bond right now is at about 4%, give or take. And I can beat that in a savings account. Yeah. And, and the thing is, if interest rates continue to come down, that's only going to get worse because interest rates are going to come down in all likelihood with a CPI that is also coming down. The inflation number should be coming down because the Federal Reserve has been intentionally trying to suppress it. So to buy an I-bond today, you have to know that they are intentionally trying to drive that number down. That's not that's that's a feature, not a bug, right? Like that that's the number that our our government has been going after in trying to suppress. So you should expect that number to continue being tempered, making that yield less attractive. The right. current version is much better. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say new I-bonds are much more attractive than the old ones because they do have that fixed rate that's going to continue into the future. All the inflation components are going to build on top of that fixed rate going forward. The other thing is alternatives are more exciting too. So as Ross mentioned, the rates of I-bonds are, are fine. I think everyone would be happy with uh, 5.27 is the yeah. current. But you can also buy you know, safe products out there in the market at banks that are generating more than that without having to risk three months of interest at maturity. So I just pulled up a random bank that I go to as a benchmark for a lot of just going interest rates. And you can get 12-month CDs in the mid-fives. You can even stretch it longer and have pretty decent interest rates. So in a world where we think inflation is going to temper and rates are going to fall kind of across the board in conjunction with that, you know, maybe there are opportunities to fix a higher rate for the time that's appropriate for you, at which point you'll be able to fully utilize those funds. Okay. So we didn't prepare to go into this, but I do think it's interesting. And so I'm going to go even a step further. So if you're in the stage of life where you're starting to build that carve out, you may want to go even further out than a year or two, right? If you're five years away from retirement, for example, and we think interest rates are going to continue to fall. Now, maybe you don't. Okay. So, so that's, that's up to you on, on your vision. I tend to think they are going to fall. It's a matter of when. So I don't know that we'll get rate cuts this year. Maybe it's late in the year. Maybe it's March. Who knows? But if you think interest rates will keep falling, then what you would want to do is lock in the highest rate for as long as you can today. That's what you're not getting on the I-bond, right? Is the I-bond is going to float. It's going to float down pretty immediately. And so if you were looking and saying, okay, well, I'm going to retire at the end of 2026, then I would be looking at a product that's going to go out further, maybe to that end of 2026. And with the way the yield curve is shaped right now, you're probably going to be accepting a lower return. You're saying, hey, in a one-year CD, I could get five and a quarter 
in a three-year bond, maybe I'm locking in a 4.7% return. That is the yield curve telling you that that five and a quarter is probably going to drop. Exactly. So that, that's really important. The reason you're getting more in a short-term rate than a long-term rate is the expectations that are being baked into the market. And so you might be able to say, hey, on this safe money, I'm going to lock in a rate of return right now that's 4.7%. Maybe that's not as attractive as what I could get overnight, but I'm locking it in for three years where maybe a year from now, we're talking about a 2% bond yield environment again. Who knows? Again, that's not really my prediction, but I just want to talk that it's not illogical to go further. A lot of people will look at that highest number on the chart and say, well, if I can get five and a quarter for one year, why the heck would I ever take less than that for a longer period of time? And it's because you're locking in that return rate for a longer period of time. It's, it's again, that, that presses people's logic. But if you could go back to the 80s and buy bonds, long duration bonds at eight or 9%, even though you were getting 15% in a savings rate or whatever crazy number it was, that's why that would make sense is that the 90s are coming. The low rate period is coming and you could have locked in that incredible return for very long periods of time. So that's not illogical when you're looking at this. I tend to be less excited about buying an I-bond today. Yeah, I'm with Ross. I think timing up cash flow needs is really the driver of your safe money strategy. And speaking to what he mentioned about buying, you know, bonds in the 80s, my first job was as a banker at a bank. And I just remember doing a lot of CD rollovers or rolling CDs to the next uh, rung of their ladders. And people had CDs rolling off at like six, seven, eight percent. And every time I was just shocked at these high rates, because even then the interest rate environment was like nothing. They were rolling into sub 1% CDs from there. And everyone was kicking themselves saying, I wish I would have bought longer duration CDs. But you know, who can tell the future? Yeah. I mean, you've got to have a view, right? Like every, every single financial product that you enter into for any reason is a combination of your circumstances and your views, right? I mean, that that's it. That's all it is, is like, what do I think I need? And then what do I think is going to happen? I don't know that people view it that way. I think they go to the bank and they say, what's the highest rate I can get, right? And I don't think they understand that they're expressing a view when they make that purchase. But obviously, people... People can have some buyer's remorse when they're when they're going through that rollover process. For sure. All right. We've got one more. Let's get into one last question. I think this should be a fairly quick one. This comes to us from Brian. He wrote in back in December. That's how long it's been since we recorded a mailbag. Brian says, the Federal Reserve hasn't raised interest rates since July, but mortgage rates are starting to drop. Why? Is there a historical average mortgage rate? What do you say to Brian, Dan? Well, so mortgage rates are also built on a couple different things. So one is expectations about the future. So as Ross mentioned not very long ago, there is an assumption that the Fed is going to start decreasing rates perhaps this year. We'll see if that actually happens or not. But that's what people believe and a lot of people are predicting. So mortgage rates are responding to that in part, that there is a belief that rates are going to start coming down. Banks have responded accordingly. Mortgages are also a supply and demand issue too. So banks need to allocate capital to places. They are looking to have mortgages taken because that's how they make their money. 
So to encourage people to take out loans, they need to find a sweet spot where people are going to feel willing to do that. And if rates have been too high, you know, we've seen this, people have just exited the marketplace in some regions because it's just unaffordable to do so. So I think that's a component as well. But also just more so than that, I think forward-looking assumptions about rates is what's driving the decrease. Um, Ross, do you have any comments or, or an average historical mortgage rate, which I do not have? So I, I, I do. I pulled it up and I find several things interesting. Number one, I, I wanted to hit this question because it's basically the same thing that we were talking about, but just in reverse, right? Absolutely. We were just talking about where you're going to line up your cash flows and, and like why the yield curve is shaped the way that it is. And this is exactly what you're seeing on the mortgage side as well, which is that once the expectation that future rates are going to be low for a bank, they're saying, well, hey, if I can issue a mortgage at six and a half, maybe I'm not getting the seven I was getting a month ago or six months ago, but I can issue it at six and a half. And then maybe the mortgages I issue a year from now are going to be at five again. Aren't they happy that they had a few months of collecting that 7% interest? And right. by the way, they get the fees to refinance it when you do that too. It's, it's back, basically the, the bank's buying a bond, right? That's it. <laughs> They're buying yeah. a bond from you. Correct. And and but you they've got a they basically have a call assumption in that bond that you can get rid of it at any time. Right, exactly. Right. You can you can refinance it. So the prepayment risk on a mortgage is super high, where a lot of bonds they can't necessarily do that. They're locking in that rate. But the on a mortgage, you can almost always prepay it and just knock it out and and reduce that that cost. So you're seeing them get ready for that. That's really all of these market expectations of interest rates getting ready to come down. That's what you're starting to see priced in. Going back, looks like it's 1971 on this chart. This is from US News and World Report. What would you guess the median interest rate has been on a mortgage? Along that issue period, I'm going to go six and a half, seven point four one. All right. Now, because of what I just said, that doesn't mean people have been paying these same rates because people refinance their mortgages all the time. But in the period of 1971 through 79, the minimum mortgage rate, according to this, seven and a quarter, seven two three. Maximum was almost 13% with the median being 8.89. So if you were getting a mortgage in the 70s, you're paying on average almost 9%. And you're kicking yourself going, this sucks. And then (laughs) in the 80s, the minimum number 9.03 up to a maximum of 18.63 with a median rate of 12.82. And all the people that got them in the 70s at 9% are going, look at these dum-dums paying... (laughs) 13 to 18% on their mortgages like a bunch of idiots. Then we've got the 90s. We dropped to a median rate of 7.88. The 2000s, so 2000 to 2009, 6.18. 2010 to 2019, the average or the median rate, excuse me, 4.03. And then since then, 3.51. But obviously, we know in the past year or so, it's been much higher. Can we talk for a second about recency bias? I mean, that's that's an amazing set of data. Yeah, there's a lot to that. 2000 to 2009, you and I are growing older at what seems to be a rapid pace, but that doesn't sound like very long ago. And and we're talking about mortgage rates in the sixes. That seems like based on how we feel today with mortgage rates where they are, like such a distant past, but we are just so anchored to those sub 3% rates that were just a few years ago. But like, 
in the 2000s, people were still paying in the sixes as a median, which yeah. means that some people were higher. Yeah, no, we're, we're not at some weird cost of capital right now that is like unprecedented. Now, I that's not the same as affordability, by the way. True. I, I have very good this point. argument because people are like, and, and, and I've gotten into this with my parents, like, they're like, yeah, we used to pay all these crazy rates back in the 80s. And it's like, yeah, the home price didn't dictate that you're spending 50% of your after-tax income to buy a very modest single family home uh, at the same interest rate. Like, even though the interest rates were in the 13s on average through the 80s, the homes were still somehow affordable because the prices weren't as elevated and real estate hadn't become thought of as this golden asset class that could never be blown up. But anyway, so that, yeah, I think there's a second layer to the story. It's not just the cost of capital. It's also the cost of what you're buying. And those two things is why home affordability right now for first time home buyers is very, very bad, perhaps the worst in history. So even though we're saying interest rates are not the worst in history, affordability is not the same thing. I, I don't want to get too far on into the, the deep end on that, but th- those are different elements. Yeah, I agree. And I, I also agree that home affordability is really the problem that people are facing more than the interest rates. Like we're in an isolated environment in the DC metropolitan area where there's an artificial demand for housing because of the largest employers in the area. And there was no real pullback in the pricing of homes probably ever with the exception of the housing of the housing bubble of like, Oh eight. Yep. Straight up from there. Yeah, no, it's, it's, this is a, a weird pocket of the country that, that we live in, but I, I mean, even nationally, I think people believe in home ownership, and then you've also had these kind of third-party buyers. Anyway, I, I think there's going to be a lot more for us to talk about on that down the line, especially if the bill to to force kind of hedge funds and institutional buyers out of single-family homes gets any traction. That's for another day. There you go. I'll be there. <laughs> we, we appreciate everybody that wrote in. These are some really good questions. There was a lot of meat on the bone for us to kind of get into here. I hope we haven't completely lost your attention. We appreciate everyone that tunes in every single week for us. If any of this was interesting to you, if you've got other questions, write in, send us pictures of your pets, send us your questions, send us your thoughts, check your balances at outlook.com is the email address for the show. We're going to catch you all next week. <laughs>